All right, everyone, welcome to The Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman. We have a new co-host today, and his name is Mark Kimbrough. Mark, welcome to The Sherman Show. Thank you for the invite. Yep, you have, you've been on The Sherman Show, but now you are actually a co-host. So uh, congratulations on the promotion uh, until Sam comes back from his travels. So he's not getting off the hook this easy, okay? Hey, thank you very much. All right. Well, with that, um, that is our new co-host, or at least uh, interim co-host, kind of like the Speaker of the House, right, uh, Kimbrough? Uh, oh. You're just the interim co-host right now. Um, we didn't ask Sam. He'll be back uh, in the next week or so. Uh, but that being said, we have a special guest with us today. I don't think we've ever had a guest that wasn't special, but today is an internal guest. Uh, his name is Scott Thompson. Scott, welcome to The Sherman Show. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be yeah. here. Well, Scott, um, instead of giving you titles and telling folks what you do, why don't you tell the folks what you do here at DoubleLine for us? Sure. Uh, so at DoubleLine, I'm an ETF specialist, and I joined last year uh, in January to help with the, the launch of DoubleLine's in-house ETFs. And since I've been participating in the broader effort and, and day to day, I focus on run, running ETF capital markets. Yep. Um, and Scott, what you didn't let me do is tell the date today. So I'm always supposed to do that for compliance purposes. And for those that have stuck with us to this first uh, two minutes of uh, Scott's introduction here, uh, today is, is uh, October 11th of 2023. And we are recording live from downtown Los Angeles. So everything is as of this date. Um, and Scott can only be responsible for things that occurred on October 11th, 2023. So Scott, uh, you joined us last year uh, over here at Double Line. Uh, walk us through a little bit about your career, how you got in the ETF uh, business, and uh, how you first got interested in ETF capital markets. Sure. Uh, so prior to Double Line, I was at a uh, large fixed income manager down the street um, in Southern California, uh, known as PIMCO. And prior to that, I had a few roles, but that was really the the start of my career in uh, institutional asset management and traversed uh, a handful of roles within PIMCO, uh, focused on really serving as a fixed income strategist. And in the last several years there was more dedicated to ETFs. Uh, so in a way I fell into ETF capital markets specifically, uh, but it was trial by fire in that March, 2020 was, was certainly a testing ground for fixed income ETFs as uh, a vehicle. Uh, and I was on the front lines there. And since then, I, it, you know, it was something where I enjoyed every minute and wanted more and more of it. Uh, and so when the opportunity to, to join DoubleLine and work with you, uh, I was very excited. And, and so you know, the, the journey continu continues. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, for those that didn't glean that from, uh, from Scott's response there, uh, Scott, Scott works on our MacRass allocation team with Kimbrough and, and myself. Um, and he uh, he sits with us day to day. So uh, when we're looking for a guest, he was an easy one just to go, hey, Scott, you want to join the Sherman show? And uh, who could refuse uh, with that kind of offer? So uh, and he also actually sits right next to Kimbrough as well. Right. So this is like a family reunion. We had to walk all the way downstairs to do this. But um, Scott, for those who don't know, explain what an ETF or exchange traded fund is. Um, you know, I I've heard you explain it before, like it's like, it's like a mutual fund, but not open, close. Explain to folks how, how the mechanism works. So I, I think of it, the simplest way to think of it is a mutual fund that trades on an exchange. Uh, so you have intraday liquidity, 
it's a a wrapped your fund or, or vehicle that allows an investor to gain diversification to an asset class or strategy all in one go. Uh, but the benefits that we've seen and really have helped drive the growth in ETFs are that it's generally transparent, intraday traded, uh, they're tax efficient uh, or tax benefits to the structure. Uh, and then, you know, the, the other kind of comparison you tend to see is uh, relative to something like a closed-end fund, uh, where the ETF, I call it like a, an exchange-traded mutual fund, is because it can grow or shrink in assets, but the price intraday will generally stay very close to that intraday NAV or estimated NAV. And that's a function of the creation redemption mechanism, whereas a closed-end fund based on supply and demand can trade at a, a meaningful premium or discount to the NAV. Uh, and that gets arbitraged away and stays close to the NAV in ETFs. Yeah. So maybe you can walk us through the evolution of the ETF. I've heard that you know them being described as the next greatest thing, the biggest trend in asset management, the biggest trend in financial markets. Um, kind of walk us through the evolution and kind of what you identify as being some of the trends underway today. So ETFs really began uh, with the first ETF, SPY, in 1993. Fixed income began in 2002. And when you know, the first initial product started to roll out, it was generally all passive. And as the market has evolved, active has become uh, the hot new, you know, it's not necessarily new today, but it's one of the biggest parts of the growing market. Active fixed income in particular began in about 2009. Um, and that really started with short duration or short term, ultra short bond types of strategies. And since uh, about 2015 or so, the double line has participated as a sub advisor. You know, that is something where we've seen a lot more uh, in terms of product breadth, you know, corporate bonds, mortgage strategies. We've seen all different types of, of you know, slices as well as strategies coming to the market. And we've also seen a lot more in terms of active equity in recent years as well, just as managers have gotten comfortable with the, the wrapper. A lot of them have gotten more comfortable with transparency or, or understanding how their strategy can be employed in the ETF wrapper. Uh, and then we've, there's also been a, a concurrent shift in, in the wealth market in that a lot of investment advisors have gone independent where they have more access to products, their own choices, um, and so the ETF vehicle, it's the simplicity of a single share class, uh, the transparency, the access has also met, been met with um, that independent client or, or advisor market. Uh, and then as that all has grown together, you've seen participation from institutional investors looking at fixed income ETFs uh, as an example for the liquidity and price discovery in the market. Um, so it's really been you know, growth coming across all different aspects of asset management, uh, see, you know, realizing the benefits of the ETF vehicle and new types of strategies are coming out, you know, every day uh, in terms of things like structured products. You know, there's a lot of innovation in the market that is now occurring in the ETF wrapper, you know, in part because it's one of the best ways for clients to access it. You know, I'm going to follow that up right there. You're talking about innovation in the ETF market. Uh, what can you tell us about some of the products here that you've helped uh, help launch? So when when I joined uh, Double Line last year, 
the the first two products that had already been filed and, and you know was really a, a team effort from Double Line uh, was a U.S. Uh, equity strategy that utilizes uh, Professor Schiller's uh, CAPE ratio or relative CAPE ratio for the methodology behind it, uh, as well as a core core plus fixed income strategy. Uh, and then we follow that up on the one year anniversary uh, this year on March 31st with uh, two other fixed income ETFs, active fixed income, that focus, one focuses on residential mortgage backed securities and the other focuses on commercial real estate debt or low duration uh, CRE or CMBS. So Scott, you were very self-serving here uh, in the innovation only occurred at Double Line. Uh, let, let's broaden out the question a little bit. I appreciate what you're doing, uh, but can you broaden this out a little bit? Talk about some of the innovation you've actually seen in the marketplace as well, um, not just the you know the the beautiful products that Double Line launched. That's fair. Uh, so you're thinking about first it was passive, expanded to active. Then we've seen um, semi-transparent in, in the U.S. equity format, uh, which is a more recent uh, innovation. Uh, as well as other derivative-based strategies. Um, and, and really just as part of it is, is thinking about the liquidity landscape. And so market makers who are in the secondary markets for ETFs helping provide an on-screen liquidity, you know, bid and an ask, uh, as they get comfortable with an underlying asset class, as that broadens out, as you know, fixed income trading, for example, becomes more like it becomes uh, you know more electronified. Uh, that all benefits the liquidity and enables further product development. Um, you know, the big uh, hot topic I would say over the last year or so has been these uh, outcome or income uh, option-based structured product uh, in ETF wrappers, uh, the buffered. Um, those have been, you know, certainly of, of a hot topic. Commodity ETFs have been another in the last year or two in terms of number of products launched. Um, and I think it's going to continue. The, the broad U.S. equity market is, is starting to approach a little bit more of a mature state for, in terms of size and style. There's a lot of room to grow. Um, and, and I think just from a, a, as this grows and grows, you know, you're going to start to see how the mutual fund universe uh, exists being mirrored in a way uh, in ETFs where you're going to see more fund funds. Um, hopefully uh, one day, you know, ETF share classes of mutual funds. There's a lot of potential further growth and innovation, uh, but that you know, those have been the hot topics more recently. Yeah, no, that that is very interesting too. You talked about, you know, improving liquidity. I always like to use the phrase traders going to trade, right? You give them something to trade and they kind of understand a little bit and they'll figure out how to make markets. Uh, and I've been reading uh, the the latest Michael Lewis book too, you know, just thinking about what the folks do with some of the people we trade with, right? And just see, seeing some of the interest there. But let's step back and let's talk more about Scott and less about the industry. And, you know, so you have this nice role of, of uh, you know, heading up our capital markets efforts here in ETFs. What does that mean? How do you explain this to your parents, what you do for a living? Well, uh, that is, uh, to my parents, might be a, a longer conversation or it might take up a few hours here. But um, yeah, I like to think of capital markets 
as a distinct role um, or, or area of focus is having four core components. There is primary market uh, activity. So that's creation or redemption of ETF shares, taking in-kind baskets of securities, negotiating that with, with APs and market makers. Uh, secondary market uh, activity. So that's on-screen trading, uh, ensuring the liquidity provision and, and everything's functioning properly. Um, oversight with our, our lead market makers and other market making partners to make sure all of that experience for clients is, you know, the the, the machine is working. Um, the third, I would say, is uh, client execution services. Uh, so really helping clients in terms of education, if they are looking to do, uh, you know, purchase or sell uh, in the ETF or want to have a better understanding of how to do so, kind of best practices, guidance, um, that's another area of, you know, day-to-day -day can help with clients, large and small. Um, and lastly is, is kind of AP and market maker relationship management. So things just in terms of ensuring we have all the right partners to support our ETFs and the growth. Uh, helping raise seed capital from our partners who, you know, participate and, and help us, you know, grow a product, um, it, depending on the asset class and, and the specialty there. Um, but those are really the four core areas. And, and then when I think of capital markets, it's a key part of the ETF as a business. And so I tend to try to wear a lot of hats and help in, in other ways that I can. I was just saying if Kimbrough wanted to co-host the show or not, but uh, he, he looks like he's frozen <laughs> on the screen there. So kind of like my uh, my webcast yesterday. So, okay. So we've talked about the beauty of the wrapper. We talk about what you do as a, um, as a capital markets person. What is kind of the big kind of debate that's going on today in the ETF market with like active versus passive, right? I think initially everything was very passive. The ETX is your beta. It's a cheap way of accessing beta or getting you know exposure to broad-based markets or certain niche uh, parts of the market became very commoditized, low fee. Um, then the active has come on. Is there still this big debate of active passive going on within there? Is there room for both? How, how do you think about this? I, so I think it's it's an interesting topic in the sense of, of seeing how it's evolved. You know, traditional asset managers for a while would just bash ETFs is, you know, that's cheap, passive. That's, that's all it is that, you know, that's at one point it's going to turn or, or, you know, have some sort of, kind of uh, negative view on it. Uh, as time has gone on, you know, the trend hasn't stopped. And I think it's the conversation has turned more to, and I like to say it is ETFs are, are the democratization of, of asset management in that, you know, whether you have a hundred dollars or a hundred million dollars, you can buy the same product for the same price, give or take. And so um, really it's been able to, to you know, for new investors uh, to access a product. And as investor or managers have, have seen that, and in particular in equity ETFs, the tax efficiency is very important. Um, and I think in fixed income, particularly since the, the COVID uh, you know, market shock, and the illiquidity and fixed income, uh, ETF served as a, a price discovery tool. And, and really the Fed buying those securities um, was not to bail out ETFs, but to actually help support the ETFs because ETFs are so integral to 
the fixed income market for certain parts of the market today. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, the spirit of the conversation has changed more favorably to ETFs. Um, but I also think it's, it's, you know, we're getting mature in the market in some spots uh, for passive, just, you know, there are only so many indices, um, there are themes and, and that can change over time. Uh, but active is probably one of the bigger areas of growth, just given the considerable asset base that's still in mutual funds um, that is likely to migrate to ETFs over time. Um, and, and you're seeing it in, from separately managed accounts that are kind of converting to ETFs, mutual funds that are converting to ETFs. Um, you know, it's, I would also say it's not a, a panacea for outflows or, or saving a mutual fund product that hasn't been successful. Uh, but for the, a product that's a better fit for investors in ETF form, for example, equity, you know, tax efficiency or, or liquidity, uh, you're going to see more growth there. Hey, Scott, there was something you had mentioned earlier. It was regarding, it was cheap passive exposure. When I think of ETFs, or when I first heard about ETFs, I think of equity exposure. It's cheap exposure to get access to the market. But over the last decade, there's been some growth, considerable growth in fixed income ETFs. What would you attribute that growth to? A, a combination of factors. Um, one is just the, the mention, as I mentioned, the the different types of advisors that are are seeking tools. Um, a, a key point there, and it's a good question, um, as we've seen the growth in in model model portfolios. Um, so these are, are are we call them strategists that are providing asset allocation solutions. And, and so they're looking at, at ETFs as an efficient way to implement it, um, especially in the last couple of years when a, a number of brokerages moved to zero commission trading for ETFs, that, that really helped put a, a tailwind behind the use of ETFs, given that a lot of mutual funds still have ticket charges. And I've even seen cases of, of large, large RAAs or other strategist types of, of clients where there's a limit just in terms of the number of mutual fund tickets they can do in a day. So it, it's frustrating just in terms of implementing a rebalance for, for a, a large book. Um, so we've seen you know, that come through, you know, low rates uh, you know, post-GFC drove a lot of interest in products that were stepping out of cash, putting money to work. And then we saw the evolution in terms of active products, active core plus fixed income, um, and now that rates are higher, we've seen kind of that resurgence in, in interest in, in fixed income solutions. Um, and, and it's also coming from an institutional client base where they can access, you know, sign we saw you know, $10 billion worth of high yield ETFs trade last week in a single day. Um, you know, there is a ample liquidity and that's because it's a well understood wrapper and there's uh, a very, um, sophisticated set of liquidity providers behind it uh, that now provide institutional level liquidity in a product that's available to your mom and pop investor, as well as your, your large pension fund. So you bring up the concept of liquidity, and this was taught to me by our friends over at State Street. And so for those that don't know, uh, we sub-advise three funds with State Street. They don't compete directly with our products, just different offerings out there for, for different clientele. Uh, but the, the point of this is that talking about the liquidity of the vehicle that you're talking about, institutional liquidity, to the potential liquid or let's say lower liquidity in the underlying assets. So 
I think of something like bank loans, for instance, which you know ha have a long settlement time and things like that. How does the ETF wrapper enhance its liquidity? I mean, again, this was um, you know this is one of the big advantages that's always touted. How do you how does it work, and then how do you explain it in layman's terms? So I think of it as um, one. There's just the the nature of ETFs in that you have the secondary market and the primary market, and as volatility increases, you tend to see an increase in trading volumes. But the secondary market in the ETF that's on exchange trading, what we've seen is that it it serves as a, a cushion uh, or you know, insulation for the fund. So 80% or so of trading occurs in the secondary market relative to that 20% that actually results in inflows or outflows. Um, and so that, that means that when there's heightened volatility, it doesn't mean that a fund is just getting hit with redemptions or hit with creations and they have to put the money to work at an inopportune time. Um, and secondly, as these products have evolved, the, the credit markets and trading have evolved as well. Um, so we, you know, a term that in kind of the cash bond trading world is, is portfolio trading. And that is um, economically equivalent to an in-kind basket and an ETF. And so we've seen uh, the growth in this, um, you know, both types of trading in a way. Uh, and so market makers that are trading an ETF and can do an in-kind basket, you know, to create a redeem are at the same time able to trade those underlying bonds in a portfolio trade and provide risk pricing and it's also helpful for asset managers whether it's a mutual fund or an etf or or an institution um so this this combination of of risk transfer across the vehicles ha has really enabled that growth so you can buy 100 million dollars worth of, of a bank loan etf in a day without you know severely disrupting the market um so it's it's the everything coming together um and, and the transparency that enables uh, a lot of that, you know, efficient growth. Step in here. And uh, I want to mention, uh, you've talked about various aspects going on here, but I want to think of things that could help some of our viewers out there in terms of their trading in ETFs. What are some of the key points that you think investors should be aware of in using ETFs? So from a, a trading perspective, I always want to say, one, just very, you know, first off, always use limit orders, don't use market orders. That just helps prevent you paying more than you want. Um, so that it's cutting off the left tail and avoiding bad outcomes. Um, but if you're looking to do anything in terms of, you know, over a couple hundred shares, and if you're an advisor and you have a, a, a you know, a block desk or a trading specialist desk or trade support desk at your broker, give them a call. You know, that they are there to help you. <clears throat> and in many cases, that is the best way to get execution done. They'll do uh, a block trade and generally it's submitted through something called RFQ, just request for quote. And so they'll go out to the top three to, to five or seven market makers, banks and, and other uh, liquidity providers uh, to say, you know, give me your best price for say 100,000 shares of XYZ ETF. And so all those market makers will compete to give you the best price and so it really is is a win-win in terms of a good outcome for the client that's looking to trade, uh, as well as you're getting interest and, and support from liquidity providers. Um, and even if you don't have an immediate need to trade, I'd always say just, you know, those specialists are there to help you. Um, give them a call. 
first, if you're just trying to figure out what's the best way to do a trade or a package of trades, um, that they're there to provide guidance. Um, and similarly, you know, if you're talking to double line, uh, I'm, I'm always a resource as well. Okay, Scott. So I, I want to rewind this a little bit because our compliance is not going to like that you promoted XYZ ETF. Uh, that actually is an ETF that's listed on the Ontario exchange. So I knew that. So that was not a promotion of that. I think you were trying to make it generic and uh, I just happened to somehow know that. Um, so anyway, um, jokes aside, um, let, let's talk about liquidity again, because um, I, I think, you know, the best practice is important, but I recall sitting in the middle of the pandemic, the first kind of week or so, watching the discounts on fixed income ETFs just wide massively. And we know the market was hung. It was frozen. There was no tradeability. We saw these big discounts in, in the marketplace. And then when the Fed brought in the rescue package, right, uh, when we started the, uh, the beginning of the free money, the Fed will buy everything uh, in the marketplace, all of a sudden you got huge premiums relative to NAV. You started off this conversation telling us about how well the arbitrage mechanism works. So explain to me what happened in March of 2020 and did it work right? And uh, we'll probably have a few more follow-ons from there. So, so start with what happened there and your observations as you were doing your trial by fire back then. Sure, sure. Uh, so it was, you know, there was a, a timeline in terms of the COVID pandemic and how risk markets started to adjust. Interestingly, you know, in late February, we saw a sell-off in high yield, but that was well-contained. It wasn't until early March when uh, illiquidity in the treasury market rippled throughout high quality fixed income, uh, namely corporate bonds, um, as well as other parts like uh, municipal bonds. And so that, uh, you know, in, in a way, balance sheet was was clogged up and, and risk limits had blown, blown, you know, gone through their limits. And so there wasn't a, a lot of liquidity or liquidity providers weren't there to step in. Uh, and so what we saw was just an absolute, you know, freeze in the underlying uh, bond market. Uh, pricing, I, I remember on front end uh, floaters or short-term paper was 15 points wide um, if you got any sort of response. And so that was something where um, the ETFs were still trading they started to trade, you know, fairly quickly at a you know three to six percent discount, um, and and what I see that as is is one, they're still trading. It allows people to manage risk when there's a price, and in all the all market, uh, these uh, corporate bond markets are have gotten more transparent, but you know back then they were less transparent. Um, and just the, the ability to take on risk in that uncertainty was more strained. Uh, whereas an ETF is trading, uh, it's transparent in terms of you know what you're getting as a basket. Um, and I like to think of the discounts. You know, people, they've been described in multiple ways. They've been described as the, the fund navs or stale. And so these are the real-time prices or more accurate prices. And... That's one way to describe it. I think it's correct. I think for me, I, I like to see it as it reflects transaction costs. So what you'll tend to see, ETFs will trade at a premium or discount to a NAV. If an ETF is getting inflows, it'll tend to trade at a slight premium to NAV. 
the handful of basis points. But seeing redemptions, it's going to trade a, a slight discount to NAV. And that's just a function of where a market maker can step in, buy the shares, and then redeem those shares, receive the underlying securities in kind, and then clear out of that risk. So for them to, to break even on that, that discount is essentially reflecting the transaction costs to trade out of the underlying plus or minus some you know, uncertainty premium. Um, so you know that was the uncertainty, the illiquidity was what drove that discount on the way down. And then as the Fed stepped in and, and it just completely flipped, right? There wasn't a huge amount of liquidity, but at least it stopped and shifted the, the sentiment in a way to where now the price was trading. If you wanted to buy bonds, there weren't, there weren't a lot of bonds to be sold to you, but if you were looking for them, that was the new price at where you wanted to buy them. So ETFs quickly reversed and, and that you know, quick reversal was also a function of the Fed stepping in through the uh, secondary you know, credit facility to buy fixing a handful of, of fixed income ETFs. Um, and that stabilized the market. And because you're stabilizing the underlying uh, through the ETFs, it, it supported the broader market as well. Okay. And so on that too, um, you know, you talked about the liquidity, the perception of it. I mean, really, wasn't this just the price of the bonds at the end of the day? Because there wasn't really things happening. I mean, that, that's kind of what you're saying, right? When you talk about, you know, the uncertainty of what's going to happen is that, you know, there was no transactions really going on. The only place to transact and do something to either insulate or offset some risk was in this market. And a market maker themselves are going to step in to kind of adjust for that uncertainty. Is that is that a fair way to think about it? That's right. And, and I think it's the other point I would add to it is just that it's, it's, you know, the individual bonds, you know, there's 9,000 plus IG corporate bonds in an index. They're not those, a number of those um, bonds, you know, hardly trade at all. So it's really more of a price of a basket. And that's, you know, more efficiently priced via, you know, kind of in, interest rate and, and dur spread duration or, or spread risk factors which you look at at a basket and market makers are you know, very sophisticated and are able to do that. Um, so it, it ref reflects that risk pricing on a, on a basket level, which I think is important to keep in mind as well. Okay. So as we think about this too, I mean, it seems like, you know, this was, that was the first kind of litmus test really for the fixed income ETF market, right? Yeah. There's just some beta out there in general, but, um, you had active funds that were that were able to meet the liquidity needs, right? We had the passive funds as well, the kind of more beta stuff. Um, but you know, as you think forward, where do you think some like uh, the new kind of innovations are going to be in this space? I mean, you talked about fixed income. Lots of uh, sponsors are out there launching products, ourselves included, um, out there in the space. Uh, I see I'm looking out the window here. I see some of our competitors outside the window. They're doing the same. And so I'm curious, um, as you think about it, is the kind of, do you see the innovation being kind of mapping some of these products that exist uh, currently in the mutual fund wrapper over, or are there going to, you know, or do you see there being bigger uses of the ETF wrapper, things that maybe aren't on our radar today? I would say both. That you're certainly going to see a lot of mapping over from mutual fund to ETF. Um, I think it's important for asset managers to keep in mind that 
just having it in an ETF wrapper doesn't mean it's going to be bought. You know, I think there's a lot of, of products, 3,000 plus ETFs out there today in the U.S. alone. And I think that that um, means that you know, distribution is a key part of that growth. But in terms of strategies, mutual fund, your traditional managers are certainly going to want to offer those in ETFs just to reach different parts of the, the clientele that they're not reaching today as there are ETF only advisors or ETF power users um, that, you know, majority of their, their, uh, in the book is, is focused on buying ETFs. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of growth in other types of, you know, clientele, you know, insurance, institutional usage, I think is going to continue to grow. Insurers are one of the bigger growing areas of fixed income uh, ETF usage. Um, there, there's going to be, I think, more of the fund to fund. And part of it is just, you know, different types of regulations that enable that, right? 6011 was a uh, regulation or, or change that enabled really the, the, the broader set of ETF issuers to, to become an ETF issuer. There was a, a very more complex um, regulatory framework to be able to launch ETFs prior to that. And so, and it allowed things like custom baskets and fixed income ETFs, which is really important and, and for tax efficiency in uh, equity ETFs. So that leveled the playing field, which is a good thing. And so we've seen a, a you know, proliferation of product since. Um, so now it's, it's starting to get, you know, the, the core areas of US equity and, and other, you know, core pillars of asset management. Now we're seeing the, the more niche areas or, or um, pockets, you know, seeing either innovation in terms of how to implement a strategy uh, where it's a, a understood strategy and then it includes an overlay of options or, or swaps. You know, there's, there, I think you're going to see some layering of that in a way um, in addition to structurally, whether it's, you know, a fund of closed-end funds, a fund of mutual funds or an ETF share class. I think there's more uh, that can be done in that, that is, is not really trying to make anything more complex, but to to broaden the access to and investors to to strategies and products they know, but might prefer an ETF. And so what's the best way to do that? And it, and it sometimes can be through these new uh, innovations. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, you potentially have a future here at Double Line as there's more innovations coming and, and more things to do. And so... Um, again, Scott, thanks for uh, taking the time, jumping off the desk. Uh, we had to do this right after market hours so that our capital markets desk wasn't closed. So um, thanks for doing that. Um, do you want any parting shots out there? You want to say anything, too, that we may have missed that about the ETF or Scott Thompson that our, our five listeners really want to hear today? Uh, well, thank you, uh, first off. And uh, I, I think, you know, reach out if you have questions. Uh, I think, you know, we're at double line, always happy to engage. I think, you know, education is some, something that is, is going to continue to benefit investors. And um, there's going to be a lot of new products just from the industry. And so I think it's important to do your research um, and it's exciting. There's going to be a lot of innovation. I think it's going to be good for investors. It just, um, you know, to make sure that you're, you're educating yourself and, and you know, seeking help um, from, from folks like Double Line. I think as the, the Latin said is caveat emptor, right? Um, so thanks again, Scott. That was Scott Thompson, 
ETF specialist, uh, runs our capital markets team here for our ETF business, the double line, part of the macro asset allocation team, and uh, still happy to be working at, at double line after month 21 at this stage. So uh, thanks for joining us, Scott. Um, Thanks, however, Jeff. in memory of our old co-host, uh, Sam Lau, he used to have a favorite part of the show. Um, and so in, in memory of him today, um, we'd like to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. So new co-host, Mark Kimbrough, can you introduce Scott to that favorite part of the show? All right, Scott. Uh, this is now my favorite part of the show. Uh, this is oh. called Sherman Says. <laughs> well, I will offer a series of alternating prompts, hoping to elicit a one-word to multi-word response. We'll see where we go with it. Uh, but I'm going to start with Sherman, and let's kick it off. Uh, geopolitical risk. Local high. Uh, Mr. Thompson, let's go rising rates. Not much more to go. Hopefully. Prior to geopolitical <laughs> risk, they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't mean to make light of the geopolitical situation. It's it's very unfortunate. So uh, next up we have risk parity for you, Mr. Sherman. Wow. They were blamed for some of the rest of the rate sell-off, right? Um, as as they were rebalancing some of that. I think risk parity is an interesting strategy. Um, you know, it, it's a way of thinking about asset classes or sorry, portfolio construction without having to forecast returns, which is very interesting uh, from from a quant standpoint. It, it simplifies the optimization equation. The math is relatively simple um, when you start to get into, you know, you're just essentially about um, trying to equate all the covariances in the portfolio. And what it does is it actually gives you much more stable profiles. The bad thing is, is that you historically had to lever bonds. And so you want to talk about the worst environment for a risk parity, even with the strong equity markets, you're having to lever up that really negative return. And so um, it's had a very challenged time. I'm, I'm, uh, I'd be curious to see how investors react to this through the next cycle, too, um, because it can do quite well, especially when the equity goes out of favor. So uh, I'll be curious to see if there, you know, for some of the exodus that's been there, if it comes back. Uh, as well, I, I, as a quant, as I said, I like the the concept as we we remove one of the most difficult pieces. Now we all have to say, can you get your covariance model right? Which no one has that perfectly, but th there's there's ways of improving on that. So um, again, that was not a one word response, Kimbro. But I haven't talked about risk parity. Really thought about it in a while, but uh, except for all those times they get blamed for uh, sell offs in markets, like the taper tantrum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I feel like they were part of what's happened in the last uh, eight weeks, too. So um, there's just something about it. So There we go. Well, you know what? I, let's talk about something else that uh, has kind of been on the back of the people's radars. It's a uh, cryptocurrency. For me? Yeah, for you. I'm not touching uh, that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not a good use of your money. Oh, that's hot. All right. Um, oh, so that Warhol behind you is? And the answer should be yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Yeah. Uh, going back to Mr. Sherman, let's go with bond vigilantes. Well, they, they made a resurgence, right? Um, you know, back uh, two months ago, the bond vigilantes and, and the narrative, they, they got the narrative shifting massively. I think CTAs were a lot of the shorting too, the flip 
there's a lot of CTA to buy uh, buying signals right now that looks like that they should be short covering now at this point. But um, it, it was interesting because a lot of folks we talked to were saying, well, this is the deficit, right? The deficits matter. We're showing Congress higher borrowing costs. That was the old school Bob Vigilante, right? That this is not tenable. So um, even though I'm saying it felt like they were there, they really haven't done it. If you want to show Congress, you know, let's make yields 22% again, right? And again, none of us want that in the short term, the pain you got to go to get there. But uh, I think that, you know, uh, the bond vigilanteism isn't there. Maybe it's because of Scott's ETFs innovation that, you know, it's just not much there. But remember, uh, you, you, we saw creations in, in ETFs, they create to borrow, right? So that's another thing that can happen is that you can create new shares to go and lend them out in the marketplace as well. So, um, you know, th there's new mechanisms for being a bond vigilante. So I thought it was appropriate to give that shout out to Scott. Nice. I'm going to say thank you to Scott for keeping a lid on yields. It sounds like you're, you're doing a good, you're doing your good part. Do what I can. Yeah. Um, Scott, back to you with U.S. Consumer. Surprisingly resilient. Um, but it, it remains to be seen as uh, things like the student loan and, and other things kind of hit in Q4 this year. Uh, but uh, it's a, a key driver of economic growth and and just for the sake of the US economy, you know, I hope it's resilient uh still. You know, it's funny Scott, you mentioned that and you know, I've been concerned about oil prices and how they lead over to fuel and I bought petrol, gasoline, I bought it around 11 days ago right before I flew to New York, so I drove to the airport, I got gas. And I drove and got gas yesterday morning. Again, so that tells you my timing about 11 days apart. Gas, I paid 50 cents less a gallon. So, um, which is kind of strange for an uprising. I think I got fleeced a week ago. I'd been gone for a couple of weeks. I, didn't buy, I think I got absolutely fleeced. So um, that's the beauty of, of California. But um, so uh, maybe it, I don't feel a windfall now as I start to think about it. But I was like, there are things that can help offset that. And the old joke is like, if you want to ask a consumer what, what the inflation level is, just look at the 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 fueling station, right? That's how people index their inflation. So anyway, random ta tangent. Lau doesn't let me do that, Kimbro. So that's why I'm doing it today. Well, I love random I would, tangents. <laughs> I, I would I would say too is just going, you know, going on the weekend to, to Costco or or any of these other places, they're so busy. It doesn't yeah. feel like folks are slowing down. Right. Well, the other thing that our listeners need to recognize is that Scott loves Costco. He I talks do. about Costco all the time. Any product that any of us talk about is, like, oh, I get mine at Costco, or here's the Costco version. So I think secretly he has outside business activities. He's clipping part of that membership uh, fee, but I don't know. But uh, I think if there's one Costco fan uh, at Double Line, I think that uh, Scott would be the stand of those. Yeah. I like it. All right. You know what? I couldn't be on today without this prompt, Mr. Sherman. The prompt is gold. <laughs> Oh, man, I was waiting for Just the because. Niners, man. Cowboys, no, no, no. there's got to be yet. one of those in there, man. <laughs> got my Cowboys shirt on today, the colors. Um, gold, it just, it can't give its own way. I mean, we have this big old geopolitical risk. It barely gets back to 1850 and sells off again, right? I mean, we were going tro trolling below it. What are we at, 1860 maybe? You know, it just, it just really can't catch a bit. And so um, I'm going to put this back to you and say that a lot of the gold bugs are back on your previous question to Scott and they're in crypto, um, you know? So again, um, 
I don't know. It just seems that gold has a time and a place. And, um, you know, with yields where they are, I just don't love that shiny pet rock today. Yeah, I mean, we're back to positive real yields. So it's kind of, I mean, they're meaningfully positive, meaningful. like not just backward looking, forward looking expectations. I mean, it's hard not to think you don't have real yields, a, po a meaningfully positive real yields across the curve. And if you don't believe me, go look at the tips market. There's two handles in the fives, tens, and thirties, and a little bit even higher in twos because of some of that in inflation component. So in general, um, I, I just feel that like, you know, the, the shiny rock is just, that's what it is. It's just something to make a loud thud right now. Well, thank you for the shiny rock comments. I appreciate it. Uh, Scott. And by the back. way, as much as Scott <laughs> loves Costco, Kimbro loves gold. If he could I, wear I, gold yeah. every day, if he could drive a gold car, if he could have a gold bike, he wants gold teeth. I mean, he loves gold. So, All of and I'm not mad at too. him, but, um, you know, again, um, everybody has their thing. Some it's Costco, some it's gold. You can buy gold at Costco now, by the way. I have heard. There, see, I knew, I knew that was coming. <laughs> that was a, a layup for you. That was an alley-oop there. Yeah, it was. <laughs> All right, Scott, we're going with mutual fund conversions. I think it's uh, hit or miss, or I don't think there's as much of a significant demand as some as folks first thought and i think that's largely because just by switching to an etf doesn't solve the the you know potential challenges that a mutual fund might have um you know if it's not really picking up traction and distribution if the track record isn't strong um it's still going to be tough to sell in, in an etf versus a mutual fund um but with that said i i do think we could see you know, future growth um, in certain products and particularly for, for equity mutual funds. All right. You know what? So we're coming to our last round here and Sherman, you mentioned it. I'm going to, I'm going to let you, I'm going to give you the floor on this. The world beating San Francisco 49ers. What do you got? You just, you just said it, man. They, they look good. <laughs> um, you know, look, they obviously look real good. Um, you know, sorry for all the Cowboys fans out there, but the Cowboys are not the real deal. Um, so I don't want to make too much of it, but I did hear an interesting stat, which kind of blew my mind that, uh, it was when I was at the airport last week, coming back from New York, they were previewing the game and it said the 49ers are the first team in NFL history to score 30 or more points in a game for the first four games of the year. And to me, it just seems like with all these like high powered offenses and the Mahomes, you would think that that has happened before, right? Easily. Would have guessed. But I can easily tell you this. The Niners are definitely the only team to do it five, the first five weeks in a row because they put up 42 last week. So, uh, look, they look good. Brock Purdy looks like the real deal. So, when Mayberry hears this from the desk and he's been doubting Purdy, <laughs> say he just throws dink passes, he stepped up in the pocket. He looked really good. Uh, I just don't think the Cowboys are as strong. Still scared of week 13 with the Fly Eagles fly. Teddy Hospital, we're coming to your house. I don't know how that's going to work out. It's not a friendly environment. Probably going to watch that from the confines of uh, Los Angeles couch because uh, I'm a scared man when it comes to Philly Eagles fans in, in their home place. But um, again, Niners look good. It's a long season. Uh, I did see a Browns fan this week and they told me to watch out. Like they're the real deal. So I don't know. I'll, I'll take my chances there with the dog pound. But anyway, um, Sorry about your Jets still. We always commiserate for it. But, um, hey, Bears are on the board now this week. 
right? We've got we've got no def- uh, only, you know the defeated teams are are waning, and so look, you're getting back in your draft pick form as, as you do. And um, for those who don't know, Kimbrough loves gold. I already told you, but he says his happiest day of the year and his peak optimism is draft day every year. It's the best day for a Jets fan, and it's all downhill from there. So uh, enjoy our old coach. Sal is a stud. Uh, your defense looks awesome, though. Thank you. It's you know it's painful, but it's all true. So it is what it is. You got to roll with it. It's my team. Yeah. Scott, I told you that there might be something sports related here. Uh, what I got for you is. EFT guy, so you can give a little background. <laughs> uh, EFT guys is my nickname on our uh, fantasy football league. Uh, currently three and two, stuck with my auto draft and haven't made a change since. Um, and that's probably going to be my strategy for the rest of the season. Um, EFT <laughs> guys is the joke because someone uh, was referring to me uh, as the ETF guy here at double line, but they spelt it as EFT. And then the running joke has been, I'm the electronic funds transfer person. So um, that is yeah, the nickname EFT guy. Yeah. And I, I did, I did uh, call uh, Scott this week. Cause I said, look, I gotta, I gotta move some money on these T bills. I gotta pay taxes. Like I need my EFT guy, you know? <laughs> so um, anyway, um, yeah, thanks for that. And uh, for those of you who don't know about our team's, fantasy football that our little team plays we just play it for fun of course and it is truly a random number generator you don't get to pick any of your players and so um you know we try not to drop the there's penalties for actually going to the waivers list you know of of, uh, embarrassment around the desk so you want a different spin on fantasy football that anybody can play go to the rng taco bell league that's what it's called so anyway (laughs) Uh, thanks Scott for joining Kimbro. Thanks for filling in. It was a pleasure. We'll have to have you on more often, Kimbro. You did a great job as a co-host, uh, no Hey, Hey's, but we'll get you your own tagline. So again, thanks everyone for tuning in. You can catch all these episodes on youtube.com backslash double line capital. Uh, we serve these up where all the podcasters serve through the various apps these days for the, those of you back in the commuting game, but more importantly, stay tuned as we will have a new guest shortly. Thanks again, Scott, for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure. This material was recorded on the date indicated in the description. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to sell or buy securities in any manner. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. This presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor its affiliates makes any representations or warranties regarding the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this material. Liability, including any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is explicitly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this material. The receipt of this material by any person should not be construed as the provision of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual, nor does it imply that such person becomes a client of any DoubleLine entity.
The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023, Doubleline Capital.